inspired word Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 to 9 I would be grateful again this morning if you will kindly follow this reading in your Bibles if you have them with you Philippians 3 verses 1 to 9 we have now reached the halfway mark in this great letter of Paul to his friends in Philippi and in this section he is dealing with the matter of what constitutes a true religion, a true Christian faith. Verses 1 to 9. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is not irksome to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil workers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the true circumcision, that is, we who are Christians, who worship God in spirit and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if any other man thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as refuse in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own based on law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. May God bless to our understanding this passage from his own inspired and infallible word. Now, boys. Now we are turning this morning for the ninth occasion in the series of sermons through Paul's letter to Philippians, verses 1 to 9. And again, it would be helpful this morning if those of you who have Bibles had them open at the passage in front of you. And the sermon title you will notice is Religious But Rejoicing. Now let me say at the very outset of this sermon that chapter 3 of Paul's letter is in some ways the grandest and certainly the most beloved chapter of these four chapters of the letter to most Christians for at least two reasons. That here in chapter 3 the apostle sets out many of the cardinal, the most important doctrines of the Christian life. If we want to know what a Christian is, we can turn to this chapter and it's, it's, it's explained in detail and with great clarity. And if we are Christians, then he sets out within this chapter the goals of being in the Christian life. But more than that, in a very personal way in these verses, the Apostle Paul is unveiling in stirring language his personal desire to know and to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a man with an obsession, and his one obsession is to know him and to be found by faith in him. 
And so the summary of all these things is that to be truly religious is to be truly joyful in the Lord Jesus Christ. Religious, but rejoicing. But I would be less than a faithful expositor of God's word if I did not mention to you, albeit in passing, that there is a problem in these verses, in verses 1 and 2. And the problem is the sudden change of tone and change of mood from verse 1 of chapter 3 to verse 2 of chapter 3. Perhaps you noticed it in the reading. Some of the modern Bible scholars blow this problem up into the dimension where they say the only solution is that from verse 2 onwards it was written by a different hand and a different person. You see their point, that in verse 1 Paul begins by saying, Rejoice in the Lord! In verse 2, suddenly the clear heavens have become dark and the peal of thunder sounds out in an ominous and warning way. Look out, he says, or beware! of the dogs and the evil workers and those who mutilate the flesh. Sudden change of atmosphere and mood and intention. Now it is a problem, but I suggest to you the solution is very definitely not to say that the rest of this chapter does not belong or the succeeding verses do not belong to the Apostle Paul. Clearly they do. And he has introduced this sudden change of note and warning for a very specific reason, as we are going to see in a few minutes' time. But before we do, let me say this to you, that as a minister I find this opening verse very encouraging. Did you notice that Paul uses the word finally when there are still two chapters of his letter to follow? Just as some ministers say finally when there is 20 minutes of the sermon still to come, I have good apostolic example, do I not? And I'm encouraged in another way by this opening verse, where Paul says to write the same things is not irksome to me and it's safe for you. In other words, he's not troubled about repeating himself, because he says you need to hear these things again. And as a minister, I also find that very encouraging. Well then, to our subject, religious but rejoicing, I want to divide these verses into two parts, to look at verses 1 to 3 first of all, and then to look at verses 4 to 9. In verses 1 to 3 we have a principle stated. In verses 4 to 9 we have that principle illustrated, because sometimes it's very difficult to grasp facts and to understand them. And so Paul, like a good teacher or a minister, puts a window into his sermon and gives an illustration, and through that illustration, light comes, and you can see how it all fits together. So this is what he is doing. What is a true religion? It's one that rejoices in the Lord Jesus Christ. How do I gain it? I gain it by looking at verses 1 to 3, the principle stated. And if I need further help, I look at Paul's illustration from his own life, his testimony, and I see it more clearly still. Now this is what we are doing this morning. Paul urges, as I've said to you, the Philippians to rejoice. And this is not just to be a feeling. You see, when we think of joy or rejoicing today, 
We often think of it in the realm of the emotions, don't we? I feel good, the sun is shining, it's a lovely summer's morning, the birds woke me, everything is fresh, the grass is dew-bedecked, the trees are green. This is my father's words. A feeling. And by lunchtime, everything's changed. The thunderclouds have come, it's raining. My circumstances are no longer bright, I'm worried. Feelings like that, that are only emotional, are really not worth having in the Christian life. When Paul speaks of joy and rejoicing as a feeling, he says, to this there must be a foundation. An emotion is a feeling where there is no foundation. But a vital Christian experience of being able to rejoice in the Lord is where the foundations for it have been clearly and firmly laid. So what are they? What are these foundations or this principle? Well, they fall into three parts, and Paul gives them to us in one order, and I'm going to give them to you in another order this morning to help us to understand them. First of all, Paul says that if you want a true religion in which you can rejoice, you should have assurance. Verse 3, we are the true circumcision, says the Apostle Paul. Now this term circumcision, alas, is unfamiliar to many of us today. If we read our Bibles, and I know many of us do, and I'm thankful for that, we've often come across the term in the Old Testament. We may be less familiar, but it occurs very frequently in the New Testament as well. And Paul uses it in a very special way in the New Testament. If I may paraphrase his language here, what he is saying is this, we are the true people of God. It's an assurance. It's not open to question or doubt. We are the true circumcision, the true people of God. And in other words, he is saying we bear the marks upon us of being in special relationship to the Lord. Just as from the time of Abraham in the Old Testament, circumcision was a badge or a mark upon the male human body to indicate that the Jewish race were in covenant relationship with God. They were special. God had entered into promises that he would fulfill to them, the end of which would be the coming of Christ. And so Paul, with this great Old Testament background in mind, says to the Philippians, the first mark of being able to rejoice in a true religion is to know beyond any shadow of doubt that you are the chosen of God, that God has set his personal seal of ownership upon you, not by literal circumcision of your bodies, but by an inward seal that he has put upon your human spirits by which you know that you are the true people of God. Now, do you have that assurance in your religion? You see, Paul says it's essential. It's not, I hope I'm a Christian. I would like to think that I'm a Christian. He says, we are the true people of God. And in order to rejoice in your religion, you must have that assurance as a foundation. Now, secondly, he says, I'll define what this religion is that is real. It has three marks. You worship God in the spirit. You glory in Christ Jesus. 
you put no confidence in the flesh. The rest of verse 3. We worship God in the Spirit. In other words, if you are able to rejoice in your religion and it is a true one, worship for you is not from the outside. It's from the inside. We worship God from the inside, says Paul, because by the power of the Holy Spirit from within, we are moved inwardly by his agency to extol the mighty acts of the great God who has delivered us from sin and put us in Christ and given us assurance. Worship is an inward thing from the Holy Spirit's activity inside us. And then he says, the mark is that we glory in the Lord Jesus. In other words, the Christian is a person who has an obsession. And the Christian's obsession is not with his hobby or his leisure interest or his work and his career or his schooling. The Christian's obsession when the chips are down are with the person of the Lord Jesus. We glory, says Paul, in Jesus Christ. And if this means anything, it means that the Christian is always in any circumstance happy to talk about his Lord and Savior. He's proud to do so in the company of others. He's not ashamed of being a member of the Christian church. He's not ashamed in a society that is rapidly becoming unchristian, of sticking out like a sore thumb. And men saying of him, this man follows Jesus Christ when we all go another way. He is worthy of all praise. We glory in Jesus Christ. And, says Paul, we put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, in ourselves we have no trust. As I explained it to the children this morning, a Christian is a person who doesn't lean heavily upon his own achievements and his own good works, who says with the humanist, man is the measure of all things, anything is within my grasp if I put my mind to it. He doesn't touch his cap to God and say, well, I need you in the hard corners of life, of course, but I can get on very well without you otherwise. A Christian's dependence is upon someone outside of himself. That's what it means to put no confidence in the flesh. I have confidence in nothing that I can do or in anything that anyone can do for me to bring me into a right relationship with God except what Christ has done. I worship God through the Spirit and I glory in Christ in a way that leaves me no confidence to glory in anything else. Now, do you get the picture? If a Christian has assurance, he is a very defined person, worshipping God in the Spirit, glorying in Jesus Christ, no confidence in the flesh. And then Paul gives us the last of these principles. He gives us a warning, assurance, a definition, a warning in verse 2. Beware of dogs, evil workers, those who mutilate the flesh. Now, why does he bring this note of warning in here? Well, because wherever these men went, they took the marks that I've explained to you were Paul's marks of the Christian, and they turned them upside down. In other words, these men who followed after the apostle Paul, wherever he went, 
and then taught his converts differently were doing this. They were saying, it's not enough for you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to have Christ plus something else. And the great plus that they needed was circumcision. These people said, you see, to the Gentile converts, you'll never be acceptable to God until you have Christ plus circumcision. So if you come to us, we'll circumcise you and then everything will be all right. And that was the beginning of the thin edge of the wedge because the Christians discovered that then they were under obligation to keep all the rest of the law of Moses as a condition of acceptance before God. And Paul says, no way. You've got to be careful if you're a Christian. You've got to listen to my warning. Beware of dogs, a most derogatory term. Because in the days when Paul wrote, the dogs were the, the curs of the streets that fed on refuge, refuse and scavenged. And this is one of the most derogatory terms that Paul could have used to describe those who had become his enemies in terms of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Wherever the dogs went, they turned upside down the marks, the foundations of being a Christian rejoicing in Christ. Now do you see the picture of Paul's concern in these first three verses? He urges us that if our religion is real, it should be full of joy because it has a foundation. It's not an emotional feeling that comes and goes, that ebbs and flows. It rejoices in the Lord because he is alive. He has planned my salvation. I am among the covenant people. And he's taken me and he's turned me inside out and upside down. So I rejoice in the Lord. Now, having stated this principle, in verses 4 to 9, he comes to illustrate it. And you know, there's nothing like a good illustration in a sermon or a talk. When attention is beginning to flag, suddenly a caption that the speaker uses or the minister refers to or an illustration from life rivets our attention and I know that quite a number of people will remember the illustrations while they won't remember the points of the sermon so Paul says I'm going to give you an illustration and it's going to take the form of my testimony those of us who are Christians I wonder have we ever used our testimony to help someone who wanted to become a Christian so that they could see the way more easily well, we're doing something that is very biblical. Paul did it three times in Acts, and he does it once here in Philippians 3. He says, listen to my experience. I'll open a window for you and let you see how once I thought about these things. I had plenty of reasons for thinking that I could make it myself. And if you give me a list of all your good things, I can cap any list that you care to draw up. And here's my list. So we could write the hypothetical question over verses 4 to 9. Is it to be your goodness that makes you a Christian? Or is it to be God's goodness? Yours or his? Well, let's divide these verses into these two parts. Verses 4 to 6 speak about Paul's goodness. The list of the wonderful things that he had inherited or acquired. I myself have confidence, he says, to boast in what I have achieved also. 
I was circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. My goodness consisted in these things. Now let's look at this list just for a moment, quite quickly. It divides into two parts, things that he inherited and things that he acquired. He says, think about me, the things that I inherited. If ever a man was in a favored position to commend himself to God on the basis of what he was, I was in that position. If ever a man could touch his cap to God and say, I can do it my own self, I can climb the ladder to heaven my own way, thank you, Paul was in that position. I was circumcised the eighth day, he says. And that's a statement of tremendous privilege. He says, my ancestry, in other words, goes right back to Abraham, the father of the faithful, whose child, Isaac, was circumcised and who began circumcision in the first place. Through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I was one of God's favored people from the day that I was born. Moreover, I was a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And you may not realize, but the Jews realized in Paul's time that Benjamin was a very favored tribe. For instance, in the Old Testament, when the kingdom was divided into two parts under King Solomon, it was only Benjamin out of the 11 tribes that stood with Judah, the tribe that God had chosen, from whom David and the Messiah should come. Benjamin was a very favored ancestry to have. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, says Paul. In other words, never through my family line, as far as I know, did any of my parents or grandparents assimilate to other cultures. My blood is pure. I'm not an American Jew or a Canadian Jew or a Syrian Jew. I'm a true Jew. His inherited goodness. And then his acquired goodness in verses 5 and 6. It's not only what I was by birth, he says. It's what I set out to be that should have commended it's myself to God. A Pharisee of the Pharisees. In other words, he had joined the strictest, strongest religious sect of his times. And although we tend to despise the Pharisees because in the New Testament their religion is held up to us as hypocritical, we have to remember one thing about the Pharisees that is very much in their favor. If you were a Pharisee, you took God seriously. You didn't monkey about with religion. You meant business with him, even down to the little minutiae of planting a row of mint in your garden and making sure that one-tenth of that row belonged to God of every endeavor that they undertook, one-tenth was religiously given to God. And Jesus, on one occasion, recognizing the strength of their faith, said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not get into the kingdom of heaven. And Paul was among the strictest of all the Pharisees, a Pharisee of the Pharisee. He really meant business with God. Moreover, he says, I became a persecutor of the church. You know, a final test of a man's religion is this. 
how earnestly he's able to go out and counter every challenge to his religion as it's presented. If your faith matters for you, you'll stand up for it. And Paul did more than that. He said, I'm so concerned about my faith and my acceptance with God, I'll even, if necessary, go to other countries to persecute the Christians who clearly are deluded and are calling my faith in question. And so he went to other countries to persecute his rivals. And as to the law, he says, I was blameless. There isn't a man living who could have pointed a finger at Saul of Tarsus and said, that man's religion is hypocrisy. In fact, if I could paraphrase some words, I'm sure, were in the minds of his fellow Jews. If ever there was a man who would get to heaven, they would say, it's Paul. Now, this is what this man was like. But what did it do for him? He tells us in verses 4 to 6, it gave him confidence in the flesh. And that means again, confidence in everything that is outside of Christ. Confidence in the things that I depend upon, not in the things that God does for me. And all the time, you see, the tragedy was this, that while he thought he was being most spiritual and most acceptable to God, his religion was of the flesh from beginning to end. He was living the highest life that a man could possibly live as a strict Pharisee. And in others' estimate, they said, if anyone will make it, Paul will make it. And when God looked down on him, there wasn't one single thing that God could really approve of in the life of Saul of Tarsus. He had to learn the hard way, as many of us have had to learn after him. Well, what was it? Your goodness, now God's goodness in verses 7 to 9. And in these verses, the focus changes. It's no longer Saul of Tarsus and what he was by inheritance and acquisition. It's now Christ from beginning to end. And the language is a counting language. It speaks of profit and loss and balancing the accounts. The tre church treasurer would be at home in this passage this morning. Paul is saying to us in simple language, there came a day in my life when my personal system of spiritual accountancy broke down and I couldn't balance the books anymore. Why? Because a new factor had entered into my experience, Christ. You see, what I did formerly, says Paul in these verses, what I did formerly was to take all the things that were of credit in my life and put them on here. And all the things I knew were debit and put them over here. And I was absolutely sure that the credit more than balanced out the debit. Until a day came when on the Damascus road, I met with the risen Lord Jesus. And then all my personal system of spiritual accountancy was broken in a thousand pieces. And I realized that the only credit that counted in God's sight was not my ancestry and my good works and my religious zeal and my persecuting of others. It was one word, Christ. And when I put Christ on the credit side, it balanced out all the debit of the sins that God would hold against me. 
this Christ, says Paul, previously despised, has now become completely adequate as my only asset. Now do you see it? It's very wonderful, isn't it, in the language of accountancy, of profit and loss. But at the same time, says Paul, I did sustain a loss. All the things I was trusting in, I couldn't trust in anymore. But then I discovered their true worth. When I put away all my self-reliance, I realized I was losing nothing. Because all these things, he says, in verse 8 or 9, became as disposable rubbish to me. And he uses a very strong word there. In verse 8, at the end of verse 8, I counted them as refuse. It's the Greek word scubala. And it really means human excretia. Sometimes it was used of the entrails of animals that were flung out to the dogs in the street as food. It became in that category to me. You know, this Greek word has its equivalent in our modern English, colloquial and not very nice language. There's a certain four-letter word that is sometimes used, I'm not going to say what it is, to describe <coughs> human excretia that Paul is using here. He says, all the things I trusted in were like that to me when I came to know the basis really on which God would accept me. Now, what a turnaround. You see what God is doing. He'd taken this man and turned him inside out and upside down. And he came to realize that the only way that he could be made right with God was by receiving the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had worked for my salvation, and he alone was the only one who had ever served God perfectly and offered himself on the behalf of others. And so Paul, turning to the Lord Jesus, says, By faith I will rest upon him alone for salvation, as he has been presented to me in the gospel. It is a righteousness by faith in him, not in myself, that I've come to realize constitutes the essence of the true religion. Now there it is. The principle is stated. The principle is illustrated. Rejoice in the Lord, says Paul. Yes, you can do, because it's not based upon feelings. Your religion is based upon facts, and it has deep foundations under it. You're chosen of God and you have that assurance. You worship in the Spirit. You glory in Christ Jesus. You put no confidence in the flesh. And I've shown you how I came to that experience by giving you my own testimony. Not in ourselves do we trust. Not in our circumstances. In the Lord. He is alive. He is on the throne. He has lived for me and died for me and risen again for me. And one day he's coming back for me in glory unsurpassed. Rejoice, then, says Paul. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, if your religion is like that, it's a real religion. But if it's not able to rejoice... It's not a religion worth having at all. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that the great apostle 
so clearly explains in his words what it is to be a follower of the Lord Jesus. Enable us, O Lord, to bear the mark of the covenant upon us, not in our bodies by outward circumcision, but by that circumcision which is inward of the heart, the work of thine own divine spirit in grace, changing us from within, so that we may rejoice in the Lord, religious but rejoicing. For thy name's sake, amen.